Built Not Born, episode five. I am Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Built Not Born is the podcast where each episode we interview everyday people living remarkable lives. Our guests have made their impact from the boardroom to the battlefield, from the jujitsu mat to the field of medicine. Today's guest is Tom Garvey. Tom is the author of The Secret Apartment, Veteran Stadium, a surreal memoir, which tells the crazy story of the time when Tom secretly lived inside of Veteran Stadium, the home of the Philadelphia Eagles and Phillies for almost three years. But that's not even half of it. Our conversation starts off of what made Tom storm out of a college classroom at Widener University, walk down to the post office and volunteer for service in the army for the Vietnam War. Tom then speaks about how he broke the unwritten rule his uncle told him about serving in the military, never volunteering for anything. Tom flipped the switch there. He literally volunteered for everything and his volunteerism led him to the airborne then to the Rangers, then to leading a special forces unit on the Cambodian border during 1969. We discuss then why it took Tom 40 years and meeting his wife Peggy before Tom was able to write his first book, Many Buku Magics, the memoir about his experiences in Vietnam. Tom is an awesome guy. He is so personable, but his story is crazy. There is a point that he discusses in a matter of eight days, he went from leading a special forces A team on the Cambodian border. And then eight days later, he's back in Philly working a job and in college. I mean, how do you make that transition? That had to be incredibly hard. He also speaks about how Pope John Paul II's visit to Philly back in 79, and then a backup tight end from the Eagles who got cut, led him to secretly living inside a vet stadium for almost three years. Crazy. What I find so ironic is that the place that was known to end so many sports careers, vet stadium, was the place that actually helped Tom heal and start to find peace again in his life from serving in Vietnam. From rollerblading around the 600 level, uh, Tom talks about crashing into Dick Vermeil, the head coach of the Eagles at the time, and then also his friendship with Tug McGraw, the Phillies closer in the 1980 World Series. The stories just keep coming. It's just a fun hour, especially for any sports fan of Philadelphia. Decades later, I love how he closed the chapter of that crazy part of his life, which he calls a libation to Zeus. This is a fun hour. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a ton of cool interviews like this one still to come. And remember, life is built, not born. Tom Garvey, welcome to the show. You got famous since we last saw each other. No, I'm not that guy. I'm, 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 I mean, I'm still that person that just can't figure this all out. This is crazy. This is wonderful. I mean, there's no complaint here. I'm loving it. I'm going to ride this horse as far as I can. When I bought the book, I just said, hey, just this. And the guy's like, wow, another one. I go, what, what do you mean? He's like, this book's flying off the shelves. So it must have just been on the radio or something. And Joe, uh, we, it's, I, I don't know the exact number, but it's over 10,000 books in about three months. Boom. I don't I don't get it. 
I love the results, but I don't understand it. Short chapters, funny, interesting, engaging stories with real people. You don't shy away from problems. You're open and vulnerable. It's a book of realness. And it, it's Philly. It is, and it's, it, it, it's real. It is Philly. Yeah. It struck a nerve and it is Philly. Ah. So, Tom, for the listeners who may not be familiar with your work, who are you and what do you do? I'm retired. I, I live in Amber with the, the love of my life, but I'm a guy that I was a Vietnam vet. You know, the, the people always say that people from World War II didn't talk about the war. Maybe they didn't, but but there was an industry going on in the 50s that I was a victim of or party to. I had toy soldiers, toy guns. We played with soldiers. I built model airplanes. You know, there were movies. I can still remember walking home from the Manor Theater crying my heart out because uh, John Wayne had died at the end of uh, the Sands of Iwo Jima when a sniper's bullet rang out. They they fought their way to the top of the island. Just, you know, regular kids. We grew up with this stuff and we, we played at war and we fantasized about war and it was a big part of our lives. And in the 60s, I was in college. I had a deferment. I didn't have to go to Vietnam, but I felt very guilty about it. I didn't think it was right. And one day in class, just before class started, a, a very wealthy kid, if there was anything, if you talk about people having privilege, this guy was privileged. He had a brand new Corvette. This was 1965. He had that year's Corvette with all the bells and whistles. His ticket was stamped for the rest of his life. His, he was talking about his father, how his father had investments in what was going on in Vietnam and was making a lot of money. And he and his dad thought that people with half a brain and money should never have to go to war. There were people in our economy that were just going to be trouble anyhow, and uh, they should do the fighting. And I sat there and listened to him talking to a buddy of his a couple desks away from me. And then I heard him say that it would thin out the herd. And I got, I felt sick and I stood up and they looked at me and I didn't say anything to them. I, I could, I had no words and I walked out of class and the teacher was coming in at that moment. I ran into him. And he looked at me and he looked at my face and I must have been pale. And he said, are you all right? I said, I just need to go outside for a few minutes to get some air. Left my books, my coat there, walked outside in Chester, Pennsylvania. It was raining. It was October. It was one of those days when the weather's changing and, you know, you know, the, the nice days aren't coming back. It was probably about 42 degrees in the rain. And I walked from Widener's campus down to Chester Post Office not intending to go there, but I, that's where I ended up, walked into a recruiter's office and volunteered to go in the Army. I volunteered to go airborne on a sign Vietnam. Went home that night. I looked like the devil. My mom started laughing when I came in and said, what happened to you? You look like something the cat dragged in. And I said, I joined the Army today. I leave in two weeks. And my mother collapsed into a chair and started to cry. Wow. And it's the story of that kid. And I ended up volunteering for everything. I've, I signed on for the wild ride. And a couple of years later, I ended up living on the Cambodian border with a bunch of Montagnards and a Special Forces A team. I was the commanding officer of the Special Forces A team. Our team was right below the Idrang Valley, which is the site of the biggest battle in Vietnam. It had taken place two years earlier. And we'd lost 300 kids in about 72 hours. The movie We Were Soldiers with Mel Gibson is that place. That's where I was. I was on the other side of that mountain. So how do you go from you, you walk down to the post office in Chester. You grew up in Ridley Park. You 
sign up. I think you mentioned in the book, uh, Many Buku Magic, someone said in the army, don't volunteer for anything. My uncle Bob. Okay. Yeah. He, yeah. Said, he said, don't ever, ever volunteer for everything. I volunteer for everything. Yeah, Rangers, Special you- Forces, Vietnam. You did Rangers. What order did the training go through? The training was, training started out with, I was in basic training. And in basic training, I was an enlisted man. I realized very quickly because there was a Corporal Paul and Sergeant Fast. They weren't bad men, but they weren't that bright. And they'd both both been in the Korean War. And they were, one was a a Corporal, one was a Buck Sergeant. And they'd been in the Army almost 15 years. And I realized that guys like this were going to be making decisions in combat on what we should do. And I didn't want them making decisions. So I volunteered for infantry OCS. So I got to go through that course. That was 26 weeks. And and I became a second lieutenant, which is sort of like a joke in the army. It's Lieutenant Fuzz, you know. And then I went right, I graduated on Friday, Monday morning. I was went across post. I went through jump school, three weeks of parachute training. And I was on orders for special forces to go up to Fort Bragg for training. I went up there and it was one of the luckiest things I ever did in the army in that I was told to go over to this uh, team house and meet my team. And I was going to be the commanding officer. <laughs> I've been an officer for three weeks now. I'm the commanding officer of an A team. Now it's a training A team. We're not going into combat. We're just down at Bra- uh, Bragg. And none of those guys have been in Vietnam except for one. And that was Giannis Rosansky. Rosansky had been in the Polish cavalry in 1939 when the German tanks rolled across the border into Poland. His unit was sent out there on horseback to face the German tanks. His horse was killed. I think Giannis had to shoot it, actually. He crawled off the battlefield, severely wounded, and spent the war fighting the Germans in the forest of Poland. In 48, he came to America, joined the American Army, saw combat in Korea in an airborne unit. And 15 years later, he runs into me at Fort Bragg. I walk in, I announce I'm his commanding officer. When I said it, I didn't say it like that, but I damn well knew that I didn't know what I was doing and I had a lot to learn. And he saw he saw that I was an open book and he could work with me and he was hard on me, but he helped me. He was like, he was incredible. Giannis knew everything. Some of the guys on the team really didn't like him because he was so hard, but I knew that that hardness would pay off. So I was lucky to have that. And a year later, I went to Vietnam and ended up running a special forces border camp in a bad spot. Wow. And so you're there, basically airborne, special forces, ranger, you're leading an A-team. Like what's, for, for, for the lay people out there, what's an average day on the Cam- Cambodian border for an A-team. Like, walk us through that. What's that it could have been like? anything. We had two things to do. We had to run operations on the border and, and find and interdict any units coming in and hopefully bring in bigger forces than us to really control them, bomb, you know, bombers or whatever. And we had to keep the camp afloat. And we were always building the camp and repairing things. And so you had, uh, if you weren't out on an operation, which was uh, scary enough, you were back at camp working your tail off. My day, I was an officer. I might cook lunch. I might dig a ditch. I might write a report. I might plan an operation. I might repair something. But whatever it was, it was a long day. And then that was broken up by different guys on the team taking their their turn and going out with one other American and some of these mountain people out into the jungle to try and find the enemy. 
And to a man, I think all of us were more comfortable going out the gate and going to go look for them rather than sitting there and having them come to us. And I was very lucky. That's how I spent my summer of 1968 and into the fall. And when I left that camp, I went to a worse camp, which had been overrun a month before I got there, less than a month, overrun by a couple of a regiment of North Vietnamese regulars. And they occupied the camp and the Americans and the North Vietnamese for three days were in the same camp fighting each other. They didn't run us out. I wasn't there. I'm not part of that camp. I got there a little bit later. It's a special, you know, when they put a new team in and they had to put a new team in because of the uh, people were wounded, killed and, uh, you know, and just drained. And you, you mentioned in the book, the first book, the many Buku magics. First off, the book, when you write it, you write it, you say it's all true, but oh, it's you, true. you use a character from your second book as the main character, the John McManus. Yeah, McManus was Tug McGraw's buddy, and he was a drinking buddy of mine. And I used his name. I used his name. The, John, the character John McManus is me. Mm-hmm. And it was originally written as a memoir in the first person, similar to The Secret Apartment. I, it's a surreal memoir also in the sense that it's so bizarre. But I changed it from the first person to the third person so that the reader wouldn't think, wouldn't understand that the person telling this story is going to survive. I wanted to hold that back so that there was some drama, you know, towards the end. Obviously, I did survive. Mm -hmm. uh, But by putting it in the third person, you don't know if this character is going to make it or not. The book leads towards a date in in Vietnam, August 17th, 1968. I had been having dreams about. And that was triggered by something I deal with in the book. And that happened the way I said it did. But I was having dreams about August 17th. And that they started before I left for Vietnam in January of 1968. So as I went through the summer, things uh, became more and more apparent that something was going to happen to our camp in August in our area. Something big was coming. And if you chart up my year in Vietnam, looking back on it, August 17th would be at the top. The chart would go all the way to the top where things are really bad, and then it would drop off after that. You you mentioned in the book that you and I think his name was Monk Andrews, you had the same dream on the same night? Monk Andrews is a friend of mine who was in a helicopter that came and and saved me that day. Okay. Uh, we did get saved at the last minute. I was with Fred Henry. Fred Henry was uh, the guy that I ran border ops with. He'd been there in the 101st Airborne for one tour, and he had an, had an earlier tour with Special Forces. And, and Fred and I ran. Yeah. Oh, one of the Montagnards. One of the Montagnards had a dream. That that, yes. You, and you shared the same dream at some point? Uh, on the morning of August 17th, after me having this dream, I, I was out on the border. I, we were heading really close to the border. We were still heading out. But we, we came across a big trail the night before on the 16th. And I set up ambushes, and that's where we were. And that morning, when we first got up, my interpreter, Wet, he he brought uh, he brought this three or four Montagnards up to me. One of them was really young; he might have been thirteen or fourteen years old, younger than your son, if you, you know, if you can imagine this. And uh, the Montagnard said, "This man had had a, had a bad dream last night, and we have to tell you about." It. The Montagnards believed in their dreams. They had they pre- had precognitive dreams. They often dreamt of things that came true. So this guy had a bad dream, and they came up to tell me this. And we sat down there around a little cup of coffee I was heating in a hole in the ground with a little bit of uh, 
explosive that you could burn, you know, which would heat your coffee without any odor. So I was heating up some coffee and we're sitting there, squat it down. And he said, there will be a big fight today, which is what I've been dreaming about. And many men will die. And I remember looking at him and telling him that I knew about this dream. I've been having a similar dream for a long time since before I came to their mountains from America. And that if something happened that day, it wouldn't affect them. They would be very brave and courageous soldiers this day. But if something had happened that day, it would be to me. And I had something to do that day and I knew what to do and that everything would be okay. There would be many buku magics. That's where the title came from. I kept saying that to him, many buku magics, which is pidgin English, but they spoke that way too. Mm-hmm. So they looked at me and uh, shrugged and that was okay. I, <laughs> the problem was solved. I knew about it. I've been told and I knew what to do. And they accepted that as logic and walked away. And when they walked away, I looked over at this little Montagnard going away. And he was saying to another Montagnard, he was giggling and saying, many buku magics. <laughs> I just kept looking at him and smiling. Wow. Amazing. You mentioned Amazing. it's a phenomenal, phenomenal book. And when you wrote that, I'm like, wow. It's one of those books that grab you. It's so surreal. It reads like fiction, but it's not, and it's an amazing story. One of the things I found really fascinating is after you left, one day, basically, you're on in a special forces camp on the Cambodian border, and I think you might have mentioned eight days later, you're back in Philly in college working a job. Oh, yeah. We're, I, eight, eight days later, I was back in college, uh, full-time in the daytime, all morning classes. I remember when I went in to register, listening to a couple of kids, they were trying to change all their classes because they had all morning classes. They didn't want to get up that early and they were upset <laughs> about it. And I was trying to get all morning classes. So we just kind of flipped schedules a little bit. It worked out for both of us. They looked at me like I, I fell out of a tree. And, you know, and I had to, I, I my life was a treadmill, but I didn't mind it. It was just my life. It was just what I had to do then. And it, it had, it had a, a collateral benefit in that I was so busy when I came home, I didn't have time to process a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to feel bad about things or worry. I was just busy. I, my, I had like a 20, 20 hour day, you know, with a couple of hours for sleep. And my job at that time, my first job was in the city, 3 to 11 at night down at 9th and Chestnut in Philadelphia National Bank, which is now Wells Fargo through many incarnations. And I worked in their computer center on the sixth floor. And that was 3 to 11 and at night. And I'd get home from the train about 12.30, 1 o'clock at night, go back to bed and get up at 6 and run two miles down the railroad tracks to Chester with all my stuff in a backpack, all my morning classes. If I needed a nap, I'd go up in the heater, the uh, air conditioning room on top of the science building and uh, curl up in the corner there and sleep. One of the technicians came in there one time and found me and scared him to death. But, you know, after that, they kind of thought I was benign. So they let me go, you know, and just let me sleep in there. They didn't bother me. They expected to find somebody after that. And that was my day. You know, it was, it was nuts. Do you think the busyness, do you think that yes. was like a subconscious thing to do just to put all the things you needed to process in the back burner? Did you think, did you use the busyness kind of keep what you needed to deal with in the background? What did you, it's you- very common with a lot of vets. They come home, they're hyperactive. A lot of people with post-traumatic stress, it's not processed because they're so busy. A lot of guys come home, if they already had their degree, maybe they'll start a business. Maybe they'll start a family. You know, they'll buy a house, they'll do all these things. And this is all good. And then after 10 or 15 years, when they get to a certain plateau where they can cut back 
you know, their schedule a little bit, then things start to sink in. For me, it was, I came home in 69, January of 69. So for me, it really started around 1976 or so. That's when I, that's when the wheels started coming off. I'd, I'd quit a job and gone up to Cape Cod to write a book. I started it in, I started in the fall of 1976. I finished it in, in June of 2014. That's my first book. It took that long. Wow. It really did. And, uh, but back then, after when I came home from writing in Cape Cod, I didn't like what I had. And it was in the following spring that I started working in the parking lot. So uh, we're now we're getting to the secret apartment. Yes. So the, the time frame I have from the book. So basically October 1979 to basically December 1981, mm-hmm. you lived. Hey, yeah, I lived. I, that, that, that was my primary residence. That's where I spent most of my time. I could always get away into the city, you know, because I was in the city. I could jump on the subway and go uptown and go, go to a friend's house, you know, people I might meet at, you know, bars and things like that. But most of the time I spent at, at the vet. That was my home base. I had had an apartment in Chester, right near Widener. After college, I stayed there. The rent was good. It was a, an environment with a library and, the, you know, a field house and all that kind of, I had everything I needed right there. So I stayed there and I was even living there when I started working at the vet. But somebody bought the house. They evicted everybody in the house at once because none of us had leases. And they said they were going to you know, rehab the house and do this, that, and the other thing. They did nothing other than chop it up into smaller apartments and raise the rent. So I was staying at my, my parents' house for a while looking for something. And that's when this opportunity to live at the vet popped up. And I understand there's three things that came together to make your secret apartment at the vet possible. You had the Pope. You had, you had Ozzy, you had the Eagles tight end getting cut. And then you had some guy at the electric factory give you the idea, made a statement or something like this would be a great place. Yeah. Mike McNally. Yeah. Mike, Mike McNally. He's a good friend of mine. And it's neat because through the publication of the book, I'm back in touch with Michael. He's been off the grid uh, in my life for, oh, I'll bet 15 to 25 years. And so Ozzy and Billy Bradley, although Billy, Billy and I are still in contact before this, but I'm back in contact with Ozzy, Mike McNally. Yes, those things happened pretty much in that order. Ozzy got cut because it was a new tight end coach. And the new cut tight end coach was, he was out to make his bones. So he studied a lot of game films and all that, looking at the players that he had inherited that he had to coach. And with Ozzy, he decided that if Ozzy changed his stance 100%, Instead of getting down and and coming off at the snap of the ball with your right foot going forward, if he did it with his left foot going forward, for some crazy reason, this coach thought he'd be faster off the line of scrimmage. When you've been doing something since you were about eight years old, the first time you put a helmet on, and you've been an all-star, an all-American, you know, won state championships, played in the pros, Ozzie had even caught a a touchdown pass from Joe Namath when he was with the Jets in the preseason when he first came up. And Joe Namath and he went off on the town. Can you imagine, you know, winning a game and going out to celebrate in Manhattan with Joe Namath and you caught a touchdown pass from the guy? You're new in the league. You're the new guy. So that was Ozzy's life, but he didn't think he'd make the team. So he was afraid of signing a new contract on his lease, which was up just before they went to Westchester for summer camp. And he said, can I store my stuff in your room over there at storage room? And he said, if I make the team, he said, I'll find a place. So he did get cut. I took him to the airport, dropped him off for his red eye back to San Antonio. 
and forgot all about this equipment we stored there last August. I said, Oz, what am I supposed to do with that? You know, what do you want? He said, burn it, put it out in the 50 yard line. I don't care. I'm out of here. He got picked up by the Cardinals and came back wearing a Cardinals uniform to the vet for four games after he got picked up, which was the game that allowed him to get his NFL pension, which I thought was pretty cool. But I had all this furniture in there, and that's the year the Pope came to town. When the Pope came to town, I actually thought I had a couple of days off. I was heading to the shore. Literally, I was heading to the bridge. I was halfway there. When out of the radio comes a voice saying, the city of Philadelphia has decided that they recommend that everybody take public transportation. They had no idea how many people were coming. It turned out it was like a million and a quarter people dumped on the city on a regular working day. It wasn't like one of those days when they had parades and holidays and they shut everything down. This was a working day. So anybody that had to come into the city was coming anyhow, plus these other people. It was it looked like a nightmare. Then they also said, if you can't take public transportation, go to the stadium parking lots. We will open them at four in the morning. That's the first I heard of this. Now, it's, it's less than two days away. I have nobody to work. It's not scheduled. My workers were all guys. My supervisors, the older guys, were they had regular jobs. And the kids that all worked for me, they were in school. And they were all supposed to have school. At the last minute, Philadelphia shut down all the schools. But that happened at the last minute. So I couldn't plan on that. And I went to Dobbs and went to the bouncer, Seamus. I said, Seamus, get a hold of all these guys that have been sneaking into games. Put a crew together and show up at four in the morning. He laughed. He said, they'll never show up at four in the morning. He said, I can put a crew together, but we can't guarantee what those characters will do at four in the morning. Because they were all, they were all, you know, night owls. So he said, let's have a sleepover to vet. And I thought he was crazy. I started laughing. Then I realized he was serious. It wasn't a bad idea. So we met at J.C. Dobbs around nine. I bought pitchers of beer and burgers for everybody for about an hour. And we caravaned down to the vet because I wasn't going to let him out of my sight. And we slept over at the vet. We were sleeping in that room with all that junk furniture. And that's when Mike McNally said, hey, you know, if you just clean this place up and rearrange this stuff in here, this would be the coolest apartment in the world. And I thought, why didn't I think of that? But I hadn't. And I had slept there that night. And the next night I was furnishing it more and more, bringing stuff in and making it real comfortable. Got a refrigerator, set up a whole kitchen in there, had my stereo, got an AstroTurf a lot of AstroTurf downstairs, new AstroTurf because they had rolls of it from when they redid the vet that year. And it was cozy. I mean, it wasn't, I got to defend what I had there in this sense. People talk about the rats and the urine smells. I had none of that. I had no rats. There were no rats in my apartment because there was nothing for them to eat but concrete and steel. Uh They they took their dinners elsewhere and that was all right with me. (laughs) I I was absurdly fastidious about any kind of food in the place. If I had food there, I took any garbage out immediately. It didn't stay there. And any food I had was kept in the refrigerator and sealed where no rats could even get a whiff of it. So I didn't have rats and it wasn't cold. It was cozy. It was comfortable. I had space heaters and an electric fireplace, an artificial fireplace. I had in the summer, it was just cool because it would normally be cool, you know, inside the building like that. I was comfortable there, but, you know, I was a guy and it wasn't a place where you could raise a family, but it was cool. You spent your first night there. What point did you decide I'm moving in here? Like, this is my place. This isn't just like a a one night thing, or this isn't like a hangout place when I'm at work. Like I'm going to live here. What point did that happen? 
at the period at the end of Mike McNally's sentence when he said, this would be the coolest place <laughs> you ever you could ever sleep. And maybe it was an exclamation point yeah. at the end. When he said that, I was there. It was mine from that moment on. You know, uh, for the, and you mentioned in the book, and it makes sense, you basically were hiding in plain sight. Speak a little bit about the job you had while you were always there and then how you were like wallpaper there. And people saw you, it wasn't a big deal. Well, everybody at the vet, I mean, there were offices in the vet. The Eagles had offices in the vet. But that, that was seasonal when they were really busy. You know, they just seized, they had off-season things to do. So it was a year-round thing. But but the Phillies had offices in there. The Eagles had offices in there. The Sixers had offices in there. The Flyers' offices were across the street in the spectrum. But aside from those major things with their seasonal activities, I was the only person that had something to do every day of the year that something was going on at the sports complex because I ran the parking lot and that was for everything. That was for the rock concerts. That was for, you know, every, the spectrum, people don't realize this. There were over 220 events in the spectrum alone in a year. Then you got some 80, some Phillies games. You got the Eagles games, you got temple football, you got rock concerts in the vet. We also had professional soccer, Two different teams when I was there. We had professional softball for a couple seasons. Didn't work out, but they tried that. They had the USFL games in there at one time. You know, there, there was so much going on at the vet. Yeah, the circus was the there for weeks at a time. The Grateful Dead. Uh, it, uh, you want a nightmare, Joe? Yeah. I had the Grateful Dead for three days at JFK with crowds of 120,000 that a lot of those people don't leave. They live in the parking lot. They go to every event and they travel with the show. So I had that traveling nightmare at the same time the circus was at the spectrum doing two or three shows a day. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yes. A couple of great stories for you to tell the, uh, the listeners. One I love, you used to find therapeutically roller oh. skating. If you talk okay. about roller skating to 600 level and maybe yeah. one time you yeah. ran into Dick Vermeil. The vet for me was a healing place. I needed the vet as much as, you know, I really needed it. And I didn't live there so much because I could. I ended up looking back on it now. I lived there because I had to. And the vet was like a way of stepping off the treadmill and just going inside myself and processing a lot of things I'd been ignoring. The schizophrenic love affair I had with the vet was to be in the vet with 60-some thousand Eagles football fans one afternoon and then the next night be sitting at the top of the 700 level with a cold beer and a full moon and just sitting there alone with my thoughts for a little while or roller skating all around the vet that's that was my thing at night or riding my 10 speed bike around the vet at the 600 level there were a lot of really nice trails in the vet there was a sidewalk in the inside the vet between the 500 and 600 level seats for anybody that was ever up there. It was about four or five feet wide and it went all the way around the circle of the vet where you could look down into the vet without any encumbrance. You could do the same thing at the top of the 700 level when I was there. After the Phillies won the 1980 World Series at the top of the 700 levels where there was about a 10 foot platform, they use that space by putting bleacher seats. Yeah. My first Phillies game with my dad back in the day, we would go sit in those bleachers. It was yeah. like you're in a high school bleacher on the top of the vet looking yes. down. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, so they, on that flat space at the top of the summit level, they built, uh, I think there were about five or six rows of aluminum seats that went all the way around the stadium. And I can't, I can't tell you how many thousands of more seats that built. 
you know, put in there. But then there was the 600 level under the 700 level seats where you, if I roller skated around there, that was my favorite because you could see the city of Philadelphia as you went around that loop, which was probably close to a half mile one loop. When you went around there, it was like being on the on top about a 10 story building. You were about that high. There was nothing around other than two or three story buildings or parking lots, you know, as you went around there until you looked towards Center City where the, you know, there was an eruption of high rises. And to ride or to rollerblade around there at night by yourself, nobody else in the building, nobody to bother me. It was restorative. It was a palliative. It was it was healing. This, I love the city. I always love the city, but you could look at it that night and you had the whole view all to yourself. You mentioned the one time you were roller skating and you ran into maybe yes. an OCD coach in yeah, history. Yeah. He more. doesn't remember this. I've talked to him. I was on a radio show about a week ago down in Ocean City, New Jersey, and he was on there too. They brought him on and I was asking him about him. Angelo Cataldi asked Dick about this back in December when, when Angelo got a hold of the book. And Angelo, he was one of the first. He got a hold of the book like two or three days after it came out. And I'm not clear on how he found out about it, but he bought the book and read the book and and within a week had me on his show. And Angelo also made a point of talking to Dick about it. But before Angelo ever spoke to me, he vetted me by people he knew in the business at sports business or whatever, who had history in the vet stadium. So he checked it out with a couple of people and they said, yeah, yeah, they, they knew about it, but they didn't know about it. Some knew more than others, but they kind of verified it. You mentioned how in, in true special forces form, there were no photos. Can you speak to that? Well, I don't know if that's special forces, but I know what you mean. There were no photos. This was back. It's hard for people to believe this now because everybody has a phone in their pocket. Everybody has a phone all the time. And back then there weren't cell phones. And I was death on that. I didn't let anybody even bring a camera in there. If I saw a camera, if somebody came in, they had to leave. You know, I, I just, a camera could prove something that words couldn't prove. And if somebody had a picture, it could get in the wrong hands and it could have gone, it could have gone crazy real fast. So nobody ever took pictures there. I'm sorry. I don't have pictures now. I really am. Mm -hmm. When you were living there during that time, did someone want to invite you to a wedding or a graduation party and go, Tom, where do I mail your invitation to? Did anyone ever say, what's your mailing address? No, I don't remember it that way, but I do remember a couple of friends. And it was kind of as a joke. They, they sent me postcards and things like that addressed to Tom Garvey, Veterans Stadium, 19148. And, and it made and it, it got to you? There. Yeah, it got <laughs> to me because I knew everybody. I mean, Charlie, the mailman, Charlie, Charlie that delivered from the post office, whatever, wherever branch he was in, he took care of the 19148 in that area. And when he came into the vet, he knew me. He knew I worked for Nylon Brothers. So when he when it went into the 19148 mailbag, I guess, and it was in Charlie's taping, he saw Tom Garvey and he knew where it went. I mean, you probably could have, I'll, I'll bet if you wrote a letter to uh, Dick Vermeil, Vet Stadium 19148, it would have gotten to him, or Pete Rose 19148, it would have gotten to him probably the same way. But I don't know that that ever happened. But I did get mail that way. It actually got to me. That's wild. One story I just loved. It's so Philly. It's so so the vet. You, I think it was in June of '80 when you came out with coffee and slippers at 3 a.m. and they're asking you. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a Twilight doubleheader. It ran into a rain delay nightmare, 
And I think they, they wanted to get the games in for some reason. It was important with the schedule. Sometimes they pushed it more than others. Sometimes they back off and cancel. But for whatever reason, they want to get these games in. And they finally got the second game in. I think it finished right around 3 in the morning. I'd been watching the game for a little bit after I'd closed the parking lot. And, you know, but it was kind of boring and, you know, because the rain and all that. So I, I went inside and I listened to the game on the radio for a while, did some reading, had something to eat and fell asleep. I woke up, the radio was still on, the game was still on. I thought, hell. So I made a cup of coffee, put on my bathroom and walked out there. And I'm standing at the railing where above where the visiting team's bullpen would be. And somebody came, a couple of people came by and they didn't want to know why I was standing there in flip-flops in a bathrobe at three in the morning. They want to know where the hell I got a cup of coffee because they, they would love to have a cup of coffee. And the, 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 the concession stands had closed they probably closed around 10 o'clock at night because they knew where this was going. I mean, the game wasn't on. It was just the rain delay part. And those women had, a. I think there was probably a game the next night. They'd be back there. They couldn't keep them there all night long for, for almost, you know, there were probably only a couple hundred people stayed till the end of the game. Anyhow. That's so Philly. They don't care. It is Philly. It's so Philly. Where's it's, the coffee? I don't care. You it's pure. Yeah. Yeah. You're in you know, a robe. I, like, I don't yeah, care. I, just could, I could have been drenched in blood and they would have, you know, questioned me, you know? <laughs> That yeah. is so, that is such a perfect, the one thing, a personal connection, everyone has a personal connection to books like this. Here's my personal connection. My family had season tickets for the Eagles from the start of that stadium till it blew up. This is what uh, I love. We were in section 254. We literally had to pass your secret apartment entrance to walk to our seats. Like you, you were that concession stand, the two concession stands, like the, together, the novelty stands with the, like you were yeah. right at 254, right? You yeah. walked. We walk by there and you come out, the MAB paint sign is right above you where you see the time, MAB yeah. paints with yeah. the time. We would sit right there. It's about the 35-yard line. My seat was two. What, what, what was it for baseball? Was it football? No, no, it was a football. Baseball, oh. there was no seats. The oh, seats weren't oh, there. Oh, yeah. I was on okay. my field. Okay. I sat. Okay. That's what, we okay. were in the left field yes. bullpen. Yes. You were in those bleacher seats that they pull out. And you bang on the, the metal bleachers. Oh, they like were noisy. That was the noisiest section. Absolutely. It was so loud. Everyone would just stomp on the metal bleachers and it on third down. And like, you would go for a Phillies game. Your seats weren't there because it was the bullpen. You and know that, what else? There was something else that was great about your seats. You were in the sun. Yeah, the, yeah, vet, the vet the vet, on a cold winter day yep. was could be warm if you were in the sun and you were packed in there with the people. Mm -hmm. But in the afternoon, as the game went on, a one o'clock game, when it got into the late afternoon, the sun was not on the, the other side of the field. Mm -hmm. And it was cold. Oh, I on your side, you yeah. had sun till almost the end. Yeah, I, I remember games were like you had to bring your baseball hat because the sure. sun was in your face the whole game. You had to hold your almost like an outfielder has to hold his glove up to the sun to see the ball. We had to do that to see the get play on the field. Like that, that's how much the sun was in your face there. But I when you described walking out, like like the, the foul pole was always there for baseball. They kind of pulled that up. Mm -hmm. like even during the Eagle season and like you're like in left field. And when you described where it was, it was like right on top of where the apartment was, it was right next to it. And that blew me away. You, you touched on something. I, I skittered away from a little bit. The Dick Vermeil story in essence is that I was rollerblading around the vet one night up on the six, 700 level, up 600 level and having a ball. And I was pretty ripped up that night came coming back from South street. And I thought I'd go all the way down the ramps and I used to go down those ramps like a banshee and, and go all the way down under the vet into the 100 level where the locker rooms were. 
At the bottom of the 100, le 100 level, where the food commissary was, Nylon's offices, and the Eagles and Phillies locker rooms, there was also an elevator back up to the fourth floor, ran from underground to the fourth floor, where the stadium club was, the city offices, and the Eagles offices. So I thought I'll take, I'll go down there, jump on the elevator, go up to the fourth floor again, and then come back down and head for the apartment and turn in. I'm coming down the ramp there flying, uh, and I come around the corner skidding, and I'm heading to the elevator. The doors are closed, and as I'm approaching the doors, they start to open. And I'm thinking, it's like, what's wrong with this picture? Something's wrong. And I thought, if the doors are opening, somebody's there. I didn't think anybody was around. There would have been two guys over in the security office with a guard dog, a, a German shepherd over by the Phillies office. That's where security was. They were in the building. I knew they were there. They didn't come out much at night and they didn't have cameras all over the place where they could watch the building either. But the doors open and I fly in there too fast, a little confused. And there's a man in there and he screams when I come through the door. I scream. He throws everything he had in his hands up in the air or drops them. And they were film canisters. They were all over the place. I hit the back wall. I'm hurt. And I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. We, we take like boxes. We go to the opposite corners. We're looking at each other. And the doors close again. It's Dick Vermeil. The doors close and the elevator starts back up. I don't know why or how that happened. It shouldn't have, but it did. And we're riding together on the elevator, trapped with each other. And we get to the fourth floor. The door's open. Neither one of us has spoken a word. And I think I said something like, good night, coach, and skated out. But I should have been apologizing to him profusely for invading his space and, you know, being, you know, whatever, out of my mind. He, he doesn't remember it. He's been asked about it by Angelo Cataldi, and they asked him about it when I was on that radio show with WIBG down the shore a week ago on Saturday. And he doesn't remember it, which I can believe that absolutely, given all that he had on his mind during those years. Plus, he was incredibly focused. I mean, he was all business. So now, then. And I, he I, did rebuild the, you know, the Eagles somewhat during those years. Oh, I mean, absolutely. He, he, yeah. A couple of years and he took him to a Super Bowl. So you got to give him a lot of credit for that. Yeah. yeah. And talk about being there at a glory time. Literally, oh. when you were there, you had the Eagles going to the Super Bowl. You had mm -hmm. the Phillies winning the World Series. Yep. Uh, and then neither of them, I think, did anything for two decades after that, after you move out. They were in the playoffs multiple times. They both went to the championship, won one World Series right there. Eagles beat Dallas in the NFC championship game there, a story I want to touch on, but then you move out and there's two and a half decades of nothing. Well, don't, you know, I wasn't a good luck charm, but it just happened to roll that way. But yeah, I was there during some really great times. I got to meet some great people. I mean, there was an article in the New York times on the 20th of March and uh, they came up with, when the reporter came down from New York to, to my house and interviewed me here in Ambler, I had given him the, the contact information of Richard Osborne, Jerry Sizemore, and Billy Bradley, all of who would had intimate knowledge of the, the, the apartment. On the reporter's own, to his credit, he also came up with John Spagnola, who had some very kind things to say, and Vince Papali also, you know, was supportive. So there were five different eagles that they talked to to kind of round out that did this really happen? Yeah. 
One of the stories that you I love in the book about Jerry Sizemore and getting back to the Eagles Dallas NFC Championship game. Oh. Mention how Wilbert's run, which at one point was the greatest play in Philadelphia sports history before we won a few titles uh, was, in the last yeah. decade. What did you look at when the play happened? I didn't look at the play. I started to look at the play. I was walking around that sidewalk between the five and 600 level seats. I, I, I had come in from the lots and I'd gone up there. Actually, I was on the outside looking down a lot and talking to my security guys on my walkie talkie. Then I came in and the game was on and I was walking around that loop and looking down at the field. And that's when he broke through. He broke through the secondary. I saw the play start. That was a run from scrimmage. It, I think it was like about a 42, 47 yard run. But when he went through to the secondary, nobody ever laid a finger on him. And I could see that nobody could get to him. And I knew Wilbert and he was breaking away from the secondary. It was a foot race to the coffin corner, you know, right there in the end zone at the end of the field. And he was going to win the race. And so I didn't, I knew I'd see that again on film hundreds of times. And I knew I'd never see again what was right there beside me. So I turned around and I looked up through the six and 700 level seats that all those starved fans that have been out there in miserable weather from time to time and seen all kinds of defeats and last minute, you know, tragedies where we lost the game, not tragedies, but, you know, and they, they were getting their, this was their moment. And they could, and that, that run, by the way, broke the backs of the Cowboys for that game. They never, it put them more than seven points behind us. And they never, they never got in a position where they could take the game back again. And so I just watched these guys and girls up on their standing up there screaming. And I mean, I could have set myself on fire and they wouldn't have noticed I was looking at them. And I just kind of like rode that moment, you know, into the sunset. It was really, it was beautiful. One of the things you pointed out on that play, which I went back and YouTubed and you, you uh, hit it on the money. Yeah. So Sizemore, you had Ed Tutal Jones on the right end of the, he was the right end for the Cowboys, one of the greatest that ever played a game. Sizemore, absolutely. Talk about what you noticed with Sizemore in that play. Yeah. Well, Jerry Sizemore came up in, in 73 and he roomed with Billy Bradley above a Chinese restaurant down on Broad and Mars. And, and Billy kind of like showed him the ropes and all that kind of stuff. But Jerry Sizemore came up as a rookie and started the first game of the season as the starting offensive tackle. And uh, he, he held that position for about seven or eight years. I, he had, Jerry, Jerry was good. That offensive line, people don't understand. That's really a skill position, but it's not a glory position. You know, you, you don't ever, if things go wrong, uh, boy, will they, will they get it? Vermeil one time when Jaworski took a really bad beating, made had shirts made up that said uh, the initials were SRDH. And that meant for the uh, the word S stood for the uh, that nasty ingredient. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it was S rolls downhill. Okay. Because that was his expression. Like, you know, w- when you do this, it's going to roll downhill and it's going to end up at your feet. It was, he gave him out to the offensive line, but, but Sizemore was really a good offensive lineman. Jerry played that, that one play. I'm glad you looked at that. He took too tall. He took him to school when the ball was snapped. It was over. I mean, when Wilbert went through that line, Jerry pushed, he pushed too tall so far in a big arc. 
he never had a chance. He didn't even chase Wilbur. He literally took him like they started off at 12 to six. He yeah. literally put him behind. Like, yes. like he threw him yeah. 180 degrees. It was, it yeah, was they crazy. were close to the same weight, but uh, Tutal had three or four inches on Jerry. He was a formidable oh, defensive yeah, a Hall of Famer. Absolutely. Yeah. How about uh, the one time you did get caught? Because I could imagine, you can only imagine where your, your relatives have the contract for concessions and parking and millions of dollars at stake. And you get caught there. That probably is not really probably not a good thing. No. Uh, but one time you did get caught on the center field. With yeah, the- I did. It, right. I came back from Do- Dobbs was at the heart of my downfall again and again. But but came back from J.C. Dobbs on South Street. And it was a beautiful summer night. Had to be baseball season because the field was set up for baseball. And I wandered out into center field right behind second base, right where the dirt of second base stops and the and the AstroTurf picks up, about six feet past that. I laid down on the grass. I'm looking up at the full moon. I think this is beautiful. I'm just having a, like a meditational moment there. And I fell asleep. And I wake up, it's dawn, mist has rolled across the field. The weather changed enough to create a mist. It's about three feet high. And standing in the mist is a security guard with a flashlight. And what woke me up was a German shepherd licking my face. And I sit up and it's, the dog's name is Axel. I knew Axel. I'd given him dog bones from time to time and, you know, made a visits to to see Axel down at security once in a while. And uh, Axel's licking my face. And the security guard, he starts to laugh and he says, oh, it's you. <laughs> he said that when he said that, I knew that I had achieved that that kind of innocuous presence in the place where he didn't care what I, that I was there. He just wanted me to get out of there because of the if the one of the head guys came in at, you know, around 637 when some of them came showed up for work, meaning Philly, you know, the Philly brass up in the office up there. If he saw me, it would have really gotten ugly, really bad. I mean, if he'd come in and found somebody sleeping out in the field, we would have all lost our jobs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would have been bad. And, but that after that, I was kind of like, okay, there are things I have to be afraid of, but this isn't one of them. It shows you the value. You basically worked the room, worked the room being the entire vet. You knew the security guards. You took care of the dogs. Yeah. The dogs liked you. Yeah. Like when you treat people with respect and courtesy and go out of your way to say hello. It's amazing the power that has when you need it to have power for you. Does it make sense? Yeah. A grill warfare. I mean, Mao Zedong said that the people are the, the sea that we as the fish swim in. And when you're, I wasn't any better than them. I was just a blue collar guy working a job there, but, but, you know, I'd stop and talk to people and, you know, you knew their kids' names or whatever. Billy Bradley was great like that. Billy Bradley to this day, there's a story in the book. It's true. Billy and I, we've gone over to Jersey for something. We are coming back across the Walt Whitman Bridge. And when I was paying the toll, he's sitting shotgun in my pickup truck. And the, and the guy in the toll booth screams, Billy Bradley, and runs around the front of the truck runs out of the booth, runs around, and Billy jumps out, and they're hugging each other. And Billy knew the guy who'd been to his house, knew his kids' names, knew all about him, and they're doing old school week until the line backs up behind us and people start going nuts with their horns. But Billy knew everybody. I mean, Billy knew everybody. Wow. Yeah. Billy, obviously a star at the University of Texas. Yeah, but in high school, he was everything. He took his team, his little team, Palestine, he took them to the state championship, and they won. And if, you, if anybody's a sports fan, they want to read something really good. Jim Dent's book, D-E-N-T, Jim Dent's book, The Kids Got It Right. It's about Billy's senior year in high school. 
and it details some of those games in in detail. I kind of allude to it a little bit in my book, but Billy Bradley in high school was, uh, he played 60 minutes. He did everything. He kicked off. He kicked punts. He returned punts. He was a safety on defense. He was the quarterback on offense. When they won the state championship, Billy had run for one touchdown, passed for two or three. He had, I think, four interceptions. He, He was phenomenal. So how did you know it was time to leave the vet? Uh, I didn't have a job you anymore. You know, the, the company I worked for, the Nylons, they had the contract up until 1981 for parking. And then it was coming up for renewal. So when the contract came up for rebid, they bid it close to what they were getting at the time, which was it was like 14.9 cents per dollar. So for a $2 ticket, which is that's what parking was back then, they were making just a little bit under 30 cents. And they thought for 30 cents a car, they could make money and all this and had a cushion in case they had some some kind of a disaster. Like snow removal was one of the things that was part of that contract. And a really bad winter could really hurt you because snow removal could be a major thing, especially if they had to do snow removal for an Eagles game, because then they had to clean the whole lots. And that was major, major expense. They bid something that they thought was workable. And they got underbid by another company. And Nylons couldn't figure out how they could do that. But six months later, the city raised the price from $2 to $3. So they were really making more money than Nylons. And whether they knew that, they had to have known that. Yeah. Why would they ever bid like that? They would have lost money on the on the, on the the $2 for car. $3, they were making money again. More that's than a, we were. That's an inside deal happened there. That, that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> someone well, knew something. I get back to Bill Bradley. You mentioned he basically kidnaps you to Austin, right? He kidnapped me. Yeah, Billy. We Billy came to town to pick up. His father died. He, he had his dad's pickup truck. Drove up from Texas to pick up some furniture he had in storage somewhere down down Philly. We were going to load up the truck later, but we were down on Two Street at Waltz Crabs having a beer and something to eat with a friend of ours, Mike Studzinski, and. Billy's telling me, he says, you ought to come back to Texas with me. He says, because it was the weather was miserable. It was like 16 degrees out. He said, come on back to Texas with me. He says, we'll have a ball. And I, I'm giving him all kinds of lame excuses. And he said, look, I'll be outside your parents' house tomorrow morning, because that's where I had run back to for, a, you know, until I found something new. And he said, I'll be outside your mom's house tomorrow morning. And he says, when I beep the horn, if you don't come out, I'm coming in dragging you out. He says, you're going to Texas tomorrow. So I said, you're going to kidnap me and take me to Texas. He said, you have the time of your life. And I did. I mean, it was really great. I didn't. I went down there on the 16th of February. We got into Texas a, a week later. It was 93 degrees. <laughs> it was 93 degrees. The parks were filled with people playing ball and throwing Frisbee and, you know, having picnics. And I spent a year down there. I came back on Christmas Eve to see my family. Let's fast forward a little bit and we'll be respectful for your time. 2004 was a pretty rough year. The vet blows up. Talk about 2004. Uh, Tug Tug died in January. I mean, he'd been diagnosed the the year before, earlier in the year with the brain tumor or whatever, you know, brain cancers. And McManus died just around Christmas of that same year in 2004 from complications of pneumonia and being a lifetime smoker. And and the vet went down. That was was a tough year because it it was kind of like, yeah, it it was dramatic. I mean, I I lost three good friends that year. Could you watch the vet blow up? Uh, Not I mean, in person. I, no. I, I couldn't either. I, I, was, yeah, I, I, almost, I was almost going to go down there, but I didn't. No, I, I just didn't want to be there. I couldn't watch it. I watched mm-hmm. the replay a uh, hundred times since then. But yeah, I've I seen snippets. I couldn't watch it. It just reminded me of back in the day I would go and I was young. I would go to the Eagles game with 
my cousins, my uncles, my grandparents, we would all go to the game, sit in section 254, row 12. And that was like for 15 years, we did that. And then mm-hmm. that, that, like when you blew that up and they, they've since died. And mm-hmm. when that all happened, like, it was just like, it, like that whole era just blew up again. I, I just couldn't watch it. Yeah, it had to happen. I mean, the, the idea of a multi-sports stadium, when it came out, everybody thought it was brilliant. What a great idea. Instead of building two stadiums, we can build one stadium and, you know, the cost of efficiency and all that. But the truth is that a multi-sports stadium wasn't good for either sport. It wasn't the best place to see. If you go to Lincoln, if you go to the ballparks now, either one of them, it's a much better way to see the game. Mm-hmm. Much better way to see the game. Uh, last story I want to touch on with the book. Mention what you did. It's a parking lot, whether that yeah. was. And they have like home plate mapped out and they have mm-hmm. the, the, the bases. You could stand on the pitcher's yeah. mound, basically. Yes. What, what did you do? You had your final beer at the yeah. department. I, I went I went down there looking for it one day. It was nothing at the event. It was, you know, the, the lot was empty. And I went out there and I found it. It's in, uh, it's in the corner over by Patterson and Broad Street, you know, you can kind of figure out by looking at Broad Street roughly where it would be. And I, I walked the bases and then I went back to home plate and looked down the the left field uh, foul line where it would be and walked from home plate to third and continued on straight, estimating the distance to about where the apartment would have been. And I just stood there and and poured. A, it's a Greek uh, philosophical thing. It's called a libation to Zeus. I poured a little beer on the spot where the apartment was and then drank the rest of it and stood there thinking about friends that were gone and the times we had there. And it was it was emotional. It was it was good. It was a closing of sorts. You know, it was good for me. Wow. The whole thing was good for me in the long run. That stadium was the place where you that healed you. Is that fair to say? It, it, you. It, it was it was a big part along I mean the real healing came from you know when I came back and after a year in Texas with Billy then I ran into I met my wife in 1983 mm-hmm. the girl of my dreams you've you've met Peggy mm-hmm. she's magic and she's really helped me a lot all my writing came about from Peggy Peggy always you know I, I'd started a book in 1976 and when I met Peggy in 83 I talked a lot about writing and I'd write from time to time but I just couldn't get anywhere with it and I didn't like it. And she always encouraged me. She always encouraged me. I mean, many Buku magics came about because of her. And this book that's doing so well, Secret Apartment, came about simply by trying to throw some something out to my friends when the pandemic started a year ago. It was back in March. And I started telling short stories or writing short stories that I've been telling for years. And they came easy because I told them so many times. And I sent them out to friends and got an incredible response, a really strong response. I saw one of them on Facebook uh, during that, during like March, April, May. Yeah, during March, April, May, like like a year ago during the height of the pandemic. And I'm like, Tom's getting really creative. That's a really cool stuff. Like, I had no idea it was real. I, I knew the stories were great. And forgive me for saying that, because when I say the stories were great, they are great, but not because of something inside of me. I didn't make anything. I didn't make anything up. I didn't have to. All I had to do was remember it. The stories are great in themselves. I just had to tell them as clearly, you know, and as honestly as I could. And and, and that shows. Wrapping up here, what's the most exciting project you are working on now? It's, I'm intimidated by a little bit because big responsibility goes with, but it's called The Long Ago Girl. And it, what it'll be, it'll be the third part of a three-part a surrealistic trilogy memoir from Vietnam, the vet years intervene, and then 
1983 when I met Peg and, and really came into my own. And my life's been wonderful. I mean, it really has. And I've been blessed. But the big blessing is Peg and meeting her, the long ago girl. It's, it's my best story. I just have to remember it all and put it together. When are you hoping to have it? Like the first before Christmas. Up? I hope to get it out before Christmas. Okay. I mean, that's my deadline. When you get that out, hopefully we could have you back on this show again. Tom, Special Forces, Ranger, 18 liter, vet stadium, apartment liver, parking. Village direct- idiot. Yeah, village <laughs> idiot. Parking, part director of parking uh, at the vet stadium, realtor extraordinaire, and now author. I thank you for joining us. Uh, it's been an honor. Best wishes to the family and your podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Wish you nothing but success on the book. And uh, hey, I, I look forward to reading the next one. Thanks, Joe. Tell Dawn I said hi.